I want you to recall with me, if you're old enough, uh, the presidential election of 2020, no, just kidding, of 1992. Okay, so think back, okay, who was 1992, right? This was uh, one of the unique presidential races in history because there were three viable candidates. Probably for the first time, I, I didn't do like the history research, but probably since 20, or 1912 when Teddy Roosevelt ran for a third term against uh, William Howard Taft and Woodrow Wilson. And um, we had on one side, right, uh, George H.W. Bush running for his second uh, term in office against Bill Clinton, right? And then this crazy billionaire Texan threw his hat in the ring. His name was H. Ross Perot. You guys remember Ross Perot? I will not try to do a Ross Perot imitation. You have to watch Dana Carvey for that one. Um, and during the, during the presidential election, obviously they had the normal debates where there were all three of them on the stage. And then they had this vice presidential debate. And Ross Perot chose as his running mate for vice president uh, a retired Navy admiral by the name of Admiral William Stockdale. And he was a man who spent uh, the majority of, or a, a huge amount of time in Vietnam. Seven of those years in Vietnam were spent as a prisoner of war. He was the highest uh, Navy officer in, uh, as a prisoner, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. But nobody really knew who he was in the context of politics, right, of local politics. And so I don't know if you remember, do you guys, does anybody remember the vice presidential debate? Oh gosh, this was hilarious. Well, it was hilarious in some ways. Um, but it was three men on the stage, and right smack dab in the center was this older gentleman, Admiral William Stockdale. He stood in the center, and on one side was Al Gore. I don't remember what side he was on, but Al Gore was on one side, and then Dan Quayle was on the other side. And these two spent the whole time just bantering back and forth, you know, just as, as these things go, going back and forth, going back and forth. And it, and it was like uh, Admiral Stockdale was just kind of caught in the crossfire and almost just like bewildered at what was going on, you know, standing in the middle, didn't say much of anything. And then finally, when he spoke, these were the first, just iconic words that came out of his mouth. This is what he said. Who am I? Why am I here? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? And what he was trying to do, what he was trying to do is just give people, nobody knew who he was, so he was trying to explain, and then he goes on and explains his career and who he is and why he's there and what he believes about government and whatnot, why he'd be a good vice president. But what, uh, these questions just were kind of funny because it felt like he didn't know where he was or who he was or, or what he was doing there. Um, but who I am, why am I here? Who am I? Why am I here? These are actually, you know, unbeknownst to, to him perhaps at the time, these are actually the core questions that every single human being asks. And I would argue ever since Adam and Eve were in the garden, who am I? Why am I here? In a talk I heard him give last spring, uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, described five, uh, what, what he calls narrative axioms or, or um, kind of these true, truisms, or they're supposed to be truisms, they're not really coherent, uh, but they give the story or tell the story of our culture. They're statements, um, they're statements of how the questions are being answered of who I am and why am I here 
in our present age. And they, they could be, if you would, a, a cultural manifesto of what our age says, what our culture says about the world. And he gives five of them, and I thought they were just very insightful as you think about the word. The first has to do with identity. And, and the, the cultural manifesto in regards to identity is be true to yourself. Okay, just watch a Disney movie and you'll see that one. Be true to yourself. In regards to happiness, he says, the statement that our culture says is never sacrifice your happiness for anybody else. Never sacrifice your happiness for anybody else. In regards to freedom, as long as I'm not harming somebody, I should be absolutely free to live my life the way I want. That's what our culture says about freedom. In regards to truth, all truth claims are socially constructed. So there's no such thing as objective truth. All truth claims are socially constructed, and yet science is our salvation. And then finally, he says, in regards to morality, our culture says all morality is socially constructed, and yet we need to work for justice. So this is a, this is a manifesto. These are axioms that, that, that kind of have become part of the air that we breathe in our culture. They, they may seem incoherent. They may seem silly as we look at them and take them at face value. And most people wouldn't even be able to articulate these. But they, but they infuse the, the air that we breathe or the water that we swim in, if you will. None of us, therefore, is wholly immune to them. As Keller actually put it, he said, these are what we're being catechized in. I put that another way. These are the things that are discipling us whether we know it or not. And, and if we're honest, that includes in some way, shape, or form all of us. And so what we have to do, because we live in a culture that, that says these things, is we actually have to step back into a different narrative, into a different story, into the biblical story, God's narrative in order to be catechized or discipled into reality. And friends, this is why the church has gathered together on the Lord's day for almost 2,000 years on a regular basis because we need to be reminded, we need to be re-inoculated, we need a booster shot every week in reality in what God says the truth in, in his story. We need to hear every Sunday Jesus' core message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first thing Jesus said when he entered into ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew chapter four, verse 17. And when we talk about the repentance that Jesus requires for us, what, what he's asking from us is to turn from the story, the, the manifesto of the world, the story that the world tells, and enter into the story of the kingdom. It's to turn from one story to another, from one catechism to another, from, from one culture to another, from one kingdom to another. This is, this is what's beautiful about Young Life is they're out there telling a different story to kids. They're going, they're going to the skate park at the top of Barnes Butte and saying, you know what, there's a different story to be lived and it's the story that God wants to tell for your life. And so we enter this morning then into probably the most famous passage in all of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew 5 through 7. This, this could be considered, if you will, a kingdom manifesto of sorts, a, a guide, if you will, a guide to life in the kingdom, which contains Jesus' own answer to those two fundamental questions, who am I, why am I here? And because it's so important, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in these three chapters over the next several years, months, I mean, over the next several months. We'll see. It'll take us a while, but we're going to spend time there. This is one of those passages, honestly, if you memorize anything in scripture, memorize the Beatitudes. And if you want to expand it, memorize Matthew chapter 5. If you want to expand that, go into 6. If you would memorize Matthew 5 through 7 and stop there, I think you would do really well for yourself. Because you would know what, what Jesus has to say about his kingdom. And so we begin here, and if you didn't notice, Admiral Stockdale's questions, who am I, why am I here, actually map onto those, those first two cultural categories I gave you of identity and happiness. And the identity question is the who am I question. The happiness question is the why am I here question. And in regards to the identity question, our culture says, be true to yourself. You are the captain of your ship. You are your own north star. You are the definer of yourself. You give yourself your own identity. And so what the world tells us is go out and set yourself to this task from a very young age of trying to figure out who you are. In other words, who is this me that I must pour all of my energy not only to discover, but to define. You know, we used to ask ourselves the question, who was I made to be? And now we're forced to answer another question, who do I want to be? Which seems more exciting on the front end, but it's actually a burden that we cannot bear. And so what we try to do is find our identity in a myriad of different places. Some of us look to our work to define who we are. We find meaning and purpose and identity in what we do. And if someone were to take our work away from us, we would hardly know what to do with ourselves. How many of you struggle to enter into retirement without feeling like you wanted to go back to work? It took me... (laughs) Dean Gertner, you worked at the DMV, Dean. Come on. (laughs) Um, sorry not knocking your work okay this this is why it takes me like five days of a 10-day vacation to settle down and and be able to begin to rest because it's like I, I have to work have to work have to work and then you pull that work away from me and I don't know what to do with myself and Carrie doesn't know what to do with me either so thank you for patient grace so some of us find our identity in our work. Others find our identity in our family, in our, in our relationships with our family. Maybe, maybe we have a, a large family unit that, that that's who we are and that's who tells us who we are. Some of, some of us are parents who look to our children to give us our identity. Maybe through their performance, through their great grades, through their, through their abilities, through their talents, but, but what happens when our children don't live the life that we had mapped out for them? What happens when they don't do the things that we wanted them to do or aren't the, aren't the people that we dreamed they would be? Or what happens when our children leave the home? 
and we've planted our identity in them. Some of us anchor our identity in a certain tribe or an ideology. It could be a movement. It could be a movement like some kind of social justice movement like Black Lives Matter or Right to Life. It could be identifying with a, with a, with a certain, uh, I don't know, identity like this is Pride Month for LGBTQ. We, we could identify with that, and many people do. Others identify with a political party, whether it be Democrat or Republican, or we find our identity in a, in a figure like a Trump or a Biden, and we're, we're easily drawn to those who share our values, our tribe, who feel like our people. And our lives and beliefs and allegiances can, can fall along party lines if this is where we find our identity. Others, or often all of us, I would say, are tempted to look for validation in other people's opinions of you. And it's almost daunting how much social media dominates identity formation today. How many thumbs up? or hearts, or followers, or shares we get tells us who we are and how much we're worth. But at the end of the day, folks, when we take any of these categories, you could probably add four or five more. We take any of these categories, what happens is that our search for identity leaves us exhausted. It leaves us anxious. It leaves us empty, it leaves us overwhelmed and distraught and hopeless because we're looking for identi our identity in all the wrong places and none of these places can ultimately deal with our fragility and our, and our brokenness and our vulnerability and our anxiety and what ends up happening because we cannot bear the load of creating our own identity, it all just makes it worse. And so then we ask this same question because we go like, man, I'm sure not happy trying to figure out who I am. And the question of happiness is really the why am I here question. What's the purpose in my life? And I think deep down we all have this gut intuition that our happiness is irrevocably tied up with the answer to this question, why am I here? That there is such a thing as the good life. And... and and, and finding it is, is the only way to achieve the deepest longing of our souls. So the, the story our culture tells in regards to happiness is never sacrifice your own happiness for anyone else. And I would add this addendum to what Keller said. I would, said never, I would add, never let anyone or anything threaten your happiness. Because if we're honest, I think we're all angry. Deep down, maybe it's just kind of a simmering angry. We're all angry at something. But we're not quite sure why we're angry. Does anybody else feel that? Is it just me? Because I feel that. We're angry, but we're not quite sure why we're angry. Could it be that our anger is driven because we feel like our happiness is being threatened? That we feel like the good life that we want and that we think we deserve is being threatened? And the difficult thing is that because our culture 
tells us that we have to anchor our identity in ourselves rather than in something outside of ourselves, we can never find true happiness because we will never find true purpose, which scripture makes very clear is something that's defined not by us, but by God. And so Psalm 1, which Jonas read earlier this morning, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is where? His delight is in the law of the Lord, something outside of himself. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And get this picture. The person who puts his identity and his his purpose and his meaning in the law of the Lord and who God is and this, this standard outside of himself will find himself to be like a tree planted by streams of water whose roots go down deep, who take in the water and the nourishment. It says about this tree planted by streams of water that its leaf will not wither, that it will put forth fruit in its season in all that he does, Psalm 1 tells us, he will prosper. That's the blessed man because his identity and his, his, his purpose is rooted and grounded in the law of God and what God says, not in what he thinks. He's, he's like the man, if you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he's like the one who hears these words of Jesus and, and, and who does them, who will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. So who's the blessed person? Who's the, the wise man or woman? He's, he's the one who's anchored She's the one who is anchored in something outside of and deeper than themselves. Well, Psalm 1 goes on after it describes this tree that puts forth its fruit and all that it does, it prospers. It goes on to describe the wicked who it says are like chaff, the lightest and airiest thing you can think of. They're like chaff. They're like dandelion seeds that the wind just takes and drives Away, They have no root, they have no foundation. Matthew 7 again, Jesus describes it this one. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And what happens when you build on a ho- the house on the sand? The storm comes and the end is not good for that house. So the foolish person, the cursed, the wicked is unanchored, they've, they've grounded their identity and their life in things that won't last and true happiness ultimately eludes them. So here we get to the Beatitudes, which really are a gift to us. It's a gift from Jesus to us saying, this is the good life. This is who I've made you to be. And so in the midst of our search for identity and and happiness, Jesus gives us this manifesto of sorts of what it means to live the good life. And, And let me tell you, Jesus doesn't tell us what we expect to hear. He doesn't even tell us what we want to hear, which, by the way, is something we need to stop requiring from God, that he tell us what we want to hear. He's not beholden to that. He tells us what we need to hear and and, and exactly the way in which God's kingdom works. 
So if the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is the kingdom manifesto, then these these beatitudes that we find in verses uh, 3 through 12 are what R.T. France, a biblical scholar, calls a pocket guide to life in the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes are a picture of what the truly blessed person looks like. So I want to end today by giving four um, things to note about the Beatitudes, and then next week we're going to really start digging into them one by one. First of all, the Beatitudes define character, not conditionals. Character, not conditionals. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that the Beatitudes are not a, a formula for obtaining divine blessing or health and wealth, okay? So Jesus is not saying, if you do this, then I will give you this. If you do this, then I will give you this. So jump through this hoop, and then you get the blessings out on the other side. Jesus is not saying that God is a vending machine. What he's saying that these statements are about living the life that we were created to live. So I don't know if you remember our study that we did on the Proverbs last year, the year before, where where the Proverbs point out that there's a God-oriented way to live in the world, and it's the best way, it's the most blessed way, the the, the best kind of life. So in other words, blessed means this is the best way to be. This is the best way to live. It's best to live poor in spirit and meek and mournful and pure in heart and and to be a peacemaker. These things are all part of the good life. New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington puts it this way. I thought it was good enough to quote here. It says, Jesus begins his public ministry by painting a picture of what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like. He's making an appeal and casting an inspiring vision, even as the Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah do for what true well-being looks like in God's kingdom. In other words, he's saying, this is what it means to be human as God intended. And so the Beatitudes, these eight or nine statements, they call us, they exhort us, they urge us, they invite us into a certain kind of life. It's not a call to act in a certain way so that we can secure these blessings from God. It's rather a a call to cultivate a life of character that looks like Jesus. Secondly, the Beatitudes are countercultural. They don't make sense to human wisdom or worldly thinking. They go against the grain. They swim upstream. And the loudest voices in the world, the most astute minds in the academy, the, the most pressing voices in the media, the most, the most admired personalities in the world do not value these things that Jesus calls central to what it means to be fully human unless it's helpful for them. In other words, unless it makes money or helps the bottom line or is useful in getting ahead in the world. But, but the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's a countercultural kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom, it's full of kingdom citizens who will always be swimming upstream, who will always look different. The Beatitudes are countercultural. Third point I want to make is that the Beatitudes 
are required for disciples of Jesus. Not some of them. Jesus doesn't say, hey, look at these and pick your favorite. Who's gonna pick persecuted for righteousness sake, right? All of them are required for kingdom citizens. Why? Why would I say that? Well, because they are Jesus' description of what a kingdom citizen looks like. They, they're a description of what his disciples ought to look like, what it, what it looks like to live under the king's rule and reign. And ultimately, these are descriptions of the king. They're descriptions of Jesus himself. And all those united by faith to Jesus will become like him. As Romans 8 tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, of Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is in the business of making his sons and daughters look like Jesus. So the Beatitudes apply to all of us. All of them. Now, here's the fun part, that the Beatitudes are impossible. The Beatitudes are impossible for you to live out, for me to live out on our own, in, a, in our own power, which kind of puts us in a bit of a pickle because I just said they're required of us. But um, part of Jesus' kingdom is that as we walk in his ways, he does so much of the work for us. Let's remind ourselves, too, that the kingdom itself is already not yet. In other words, the kingdom is here. The king has brought it. The king has inaugurated his kingdom. He's given us his spirit. He's created his church. His kingdom is here, but it's not here in its fullness. That is still to come in the future. It's, there's more to come. It's not complete. In the same way, we as disciples in this world will never be complete. There will always be more to come. We are always becoming. And so we can take heart if we're not perfect, if we don't live, the, live up to these today or tomorrow or a month from now or 10 years from now, guess what? God's grace and power is enough. And he fills us and he walks with us and he works these beautiful things of his beautiful kingdom into us. So what does it mean to be blessed? Because the, the Beatitudes are ultimately about what it means to live the good life, what it means to be fully human. And those who are blessed are those who are really being what they were made to be. Jesus would look at the blessed person and say, he or she is being who they were made to be. She is, is doing what I made her to do. Jesus is saying here, this is what happy and whole human beings look like because they're human beings who are connected with my father in relationship and submission. Their identity comes from God, not from themselves, and they're being shaped and formed more and more into my image. Those are the people who are blessed. So in kicking off the most famous sermon ever recorded, Jesus lays out for us the best way to live and he invites us into it by his grace. It's not like he sets up an American ninja course, the hardest you could ever think of and say, okay, work your tail off and get through that. And when you do, then you'll be blessed. No, what he's doing is he's inviting us to live a life that is the most good and true and beautiful way of living. So the, the Beatitudes are where identity and our happiness 
converge. Remember, the world says in regards to identity, be true to yourself, and Jesus says your true identity can only be found in him. Jesus is the only identity who will tell us exactly who we are, and he tells us that you are sons and daughters of the king by faith in him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, 1 John 3, 1. And in regards to happiness, the world says, never sacrifice your own happiness for anyone else. But Jesus says, happiness can only be found when my life is not my own, but when it belongs to someone else. And when the ultimate virtue of my life isn't self-preservation or self-actualization, but sacrificial love. And when I live out poverty of spirit, when I live out mournfulness and meekness and hunger and thirsting for righteousness and purity of heart and peacemaking and actually suffering for Jesus' sake, this is when I'm really living out the good life. So to truly be happy, to truly flourish is to be Christ's. It's to belong to him. It's to become more and more like him, for him to be working all of these blessednesses. It's not a word, but I just made it a word. All of these beatitudes into your life. So the question is, are you blessed? Is Jesus working these things into your life? Maybe it's ever so slowly, but is he working them into your life? And you are, are you partnering with him as a son or daughter of the king in his kingdom. As we come to the communion table this morning, we remember that in Jesus we have the perfect picture of someone who knew exactly who they were and what they were doing here. He was the son of God. And he was here to seek and to save the lost. And as we take communion this morning, I want to remind you of the way in which Jesus pursued the good life. Hebrews 12.2 says this, looking to Jesus this morning, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, for the joy, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand the throne of God. Let's look to Jesus this morning as we take of the bread, as we take of the juice, as we ingest it, as we remember his sacrifice, that in him we have our identity and in him, in him we have true joy. And we're doing um, communion traditionally this morning. I would invite you to come and get your elements and take them back to your seat. Don't hang out over them this morning. Take them back to your seat. And, and um, as we come to this next song, I invite you to take part in communion. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning and we are here listening to your word and I pray that your spirit would just be digesting it in us, kneading it into us, working what you want to say this morning into us. God, we admit that we swim in a culture that tells us all sorts of things that don't align with your truth, things about ourselves, things about our end, our purpose, things about what's true. And so, Father, as we, as we go from here, we pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, that he would be the one to whom we look, he would be the one where we find our identity, the one to whom we look for true joy and true happiness. And as we study these beatitudes over the next several weeks, God, would you work them into us? Would you do your work? Would you, would you make us these things by your grace and in them? 
In you would we find life and life everlasting. May your grace and your peace be upon us, we pray. Amen.